We continue our series on King David, a man after God's own heart, and this is part 22. The title this morning, David Comes to His Senses, from 2 Samuel chapter 24, verses 1 to 16. And uh, it'll take us a couple of weeks to get through this chapter because there's a lot in it. So you think there's a lot on this morning, so we better get stuck into it. Now in, a ser- in our series on, on the life of King David, we have tracked his life from humble beginnings to his rise and then his fall where he, he suffered the consequences of God's judgment on his life and that of his family and his kingdom. Sin has taken a, a very, very heavy toll. But in God's mercy, he was forgiven, his kingdom restored. And now after all the ups and downs of life, one, one would think, one would have hoped that he would just ride into the sunset. But as much as we would wish that that was the case, that's not the end of the story. There are still some twists and turns left in this last leg of his colourful journey. Now this morning I want us to consider another foolish decision that David made, this one in his senior years. Now you would think that after uh, all the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba that he would have learnt the lessons. Well let me tell you that uh, there is a sad fact of life that we don't automatically reach perfection by simply growing old. We've got a big disagreement from some of our senior citizens here. They think they're already there. Youth is normally the, the, the age where you heap one mistake upon another, right? But aged and godly saints can act foolishly as well. So David, in the twilight of his life, again does something stupid. Our first heading this morning the mystery of the divine wrath. This is going to be a heavy, I'm going to pile on the heavy stuff at the beginning, so you need to stay with me. This is going to push you, okay? The mystery of divine wrath from verse 1. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he incited David against them, saying, go and count Israel and Judah. As you can imagine, this this passage has stirred up quite a lot of discussion. Here we have God's wrath burning against Israel and he is going to use David's sin as the vehicle of his wrath upon his people. How is this fair? And passages like this are used by our detractors, the detractors of our faith, to tell us that we are simply wasting our time believing in an apparently capricious God. Are you with me? Some questions. 
Firstly, why is God angry against Israel? We are not told. Does this bother us? Do we perhaps assume that God must always explain himself and justify his ways? If we are troubled by a text that tells us that God is angry, but does not tell us why, are we not saying that we really don't trust him to be just? Is there not a strain within us that insists that there must be no mysteries in God? Don't we sometimes assume that God owes us an explanation? Are we upset because God is not perfectly transparent with us on all things? Can we still worship a God of mystery and wonder? Secondly, how can God prompt David to carry out an action for which he is then found guilty? Still with me? Satan, who in the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles, it is Satan who incites David. I don't think we've got any problem with that. So in Chronicles, it's Satan inciting David, and in 1 Samuel, it's God. Which is it? Remember that God does not tempt anyone to sin. James says, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. James 1.13 But God does allow Satan to tempt us. Okay, where do you get this from? Well, This is the case with Job. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. This is also the case with Peter, the Apostle Peter. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And this is the case of Jesus himself. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Perhaps all this sounds still a little bit unfair to you, a little bit uncomfortable, maybe very uncomfortable. And I've been thrown these questions by doubters. I try to explain the best way I can, but they're still unsatisfied. They still walk away unsatisfied. In the end, I simply shrug my shoulders and tell them that God doesn't have to give account of his actions to us. If you're uncomfortable with that, it doesn't really bother me, really, in the end. I can go to sleep. Probably you won't, but I can. 
God doesn't have to give an account of his actions to us. If God did that, then God wouldn't be God, we would be. Well, explain to me, God, how, why did you do that? Because I need to know. I want to know. Because I do. Well, folks, we, we all need to get a grip on Romans 9. If you haven't read Romans 9 in a while, then perhaps you've got to read it again and again. Where Paul tackles this issue and, and it's much wider, but I'm just going to give it to you, just a couple of verses here. One of you will say to me, he says, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? Think back on David, right? And then Paul says, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? But that's not fair! God doesn't have to be fair. He's just. According to our interpretation, he doesn't have to be fair. Oh, he's more than fair and just and all of that, his divine attributes, but can you live with that? So back to, back to our passage. God allows Satan some scope for his tempting activity, but God also sets the boundaries on Satan's work and and forbids him to go beyond those limits. God allowed Satan to kill all of Job's children, but he did not allow him to kill Job. A drunk driver killed those four children in Oatlands a couple of years ago. Remember that? But ultimately, it was God who allowed it to happen. Just yesterday, um, Haiti is again a lot of trouble in Haiti, and a pastor and his sons, two sons, were in the car, and the the, the thugs killed his son. How is that fair? And maybe this is difficult for us to accept, but ultimately, it is God who decides to permit, which means that we cannot use Satan to avoid God. Now, there's a big statement. Because ultimately, you are confronted by God, who is sovereign over all. God allowing Satan to tempt David was part of his overall purposes. Why? It's a mystery. Live with it. Verses 2 to 9, the cost of counting. The cost of counting. So the king said to Joab and the army of commanders with him, go throughout the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and roll the fighting men so that I may know how many men there are. But Joab replied to the king, 
may the Lord multiply the troops of a hundred times over and, and may the eyes of my Lord the King see it. But why does the Lord my King want to do such a thing? The king's word, however, overruled Joab and and the army commanders so that they left the presence of the king to enrol the fighting men of Israel. Remember, uh, Jesus told us to count the cost, but there is also a cost to counting, as David found out. Counting is a good accounting principle, right, Elizabeth? Yes? Yes? She does this part of a job each and every day. In, in Australia, we just participated in a, in a census that is done every five years. They tell us that it's, this is in order to, to see the, the, the trends in society and communities and enables us to adjust policies and provide services where they are needed. So they tell us. But in Israel's instance, it was the wrong thing to do. In other circumstances in the Old Testament, there were some groups who were numbered, and then there were obvious reasons for doing so. There's a whole book in the Bible called Numbers. What's that about? So why did David do it then? Well, just a couple of Reasons uh, off the top, there are more, but let me just name a couple. To prepare for war. David decided when soldiers were numbered, it was in preparation for battle. David decides to number the fighting men of Israel and Judah. And, and like we said, taking a census is not necessarily wrong. Moses numbered the fighting men of Israel in preparation for battle. That was in Numbers chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and so on. And David's census took nearly 10 months to complete. It was a very long process. And somehow it it required the participation of the military commanders themselves because they would have had a deep interest in doing so. Because it's possible that when the soldiers were numbered, they were also ranked on their ability, on their education, on on their standing. Officers and foot soldiers, so they would be ready to fight, you know, the click of a finger. But, but in this instance, we are not told of any battle. There, there, weren't, there wasn't any, any immediate conflict that surrounded them, anybody who was threatening them. It was a time of peace, so why count the soldiers? So firstly, to prepare for war, but then to pump his ego. David, a proud man, better believe it. Pride is the perennial curse of the human race. And it doesn't slow down with age. I think it actually gets worse, to be honest. Sorry, folks. I know, I've just insulted half my, half my church here. especially for those, it gets worse, especially for those with power and wealth. It appears that David's main reason for numbering his men 
It was more than curiosity, wanting to know, but also to puff up his pride. Uh, In his younger days, in his younger days, he was invincible in battle despite the huge numerical disadvantage. He'd had this puny army confronting thousands and he was able to beat them. So why worry? You know, there was a humongous numerical disadvantage then and now you're counting? Why not just rely on God who helped you in the past? Why can't he do the same thing now? Why are you so worried? And yet now in, in the twilight of his years, he appears to be overly interested in his might and his accomplishments. Oh, I remember that battle back in the day. It was a good time, you know. I stood there on top of the hill and I just thought, man, that was amazing. And then did I tell you about the other time? That was great, wasn't it? Oh. Come on, kids, listen to Grandad tell you the stories of his battles. How many men did I have? Well, let me tell you. Joab, how many men? 1.3 million. Wow, see? Grandpa did good, eh? Grandpa's more than good. Don't you forget it. Have you ever had those conversations? Just watch yourself, guys. I don't care if you're 8 or 80 or 100. Watch your pride. Watch your pride. What started in the garden continues on. It's a cancer. All that you have, all that you are, all that you will ever be is in the hands of God. Any merit, any victories, any defeats, any accomplishments, it's all by his mercy and grace. Nothing more, nothing less. And he pays... and. and Joab, in his statement, when he opposes the king, he says, why are you doing this? He actually says, may your eyes see it, because he can see the pride in his his king. This is his commander-in-chief, right, Joab? He's saying, may your eyes see it. You know, like like Hitler standing in his, marching, and they're all marching in front of him, right? That type of thing. See it everywhere. What about the dependence on God, David? What about his goodness to you? What about, you know, all those psalms that you wrote? You know, like... Praising God, your shepherd, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And suddenly you're counting. Be careful, guys, be careful. I'm saying this to myself, I'm saying it to you. 
And there's also, despite the warnings from the law, in the book of Exodus we read, when you take a census of the Israelites to count them, each one must pay the Lord's ransom for his life at, at the time he is counted. Then no plague will come upon them when you number them. That's Exodus chapter 30 verse 12. There is something not quite right about having to number the military. It is an evil for which atonement must be made. And if it is not, then a plague will come upon the nation. Whenever a census was taken, each person who was counted had to give a shekel to God. That money was given to make atonement for them reminded the people of Israel that that they depended on the mercy of God for their very lives. And now when David took his census, it appeared that he ignored this regulation. He just wanted to know the numbers. He wasn't interested in the people giving a shekel. He didn't make the people of Israel pay their half shekel and, yeah, that was possibly one reason. And and, and he did this despite the warning from his generals. Now, we might struggle with the the sinfulness of such an act, but the the generals were opposed in verses 3 and 4, his commanders and others. They were opposed to numbering the the fighting men of the nation. And his five-star general, you know, Joab, protested strongly, please don't do this. No army in their right mind would oppose counting the soldiers, especially the five-star generals. They're happy to do so. They want to know how many men they can count on. But, however, even this bloodthirsty general like Joab says no. Then you really got to listen to him. But he didn't. David overruled him and the other commanders, and insisted that the census be taken. And reluctantly, half-heartedly, Joab went about his task, and it was, like I said, ten months to do the whole thing. Folks, let us not measure success or blessings merely in terms of numbers. Even in the old hymn, count your blessing, name them one by one. Even then, be careful. Be grateful, yes, but be careful. Let us not rest on our laurels by continually looking back at past accomplishments or possessions. Don't be like Lot's wife who had to look back at everything that she was losing. She had to look back and was turned into a pillar of salt. Be like Paul, who considered all rubbish for the sake of knowing Christ. Let us press on to that which God has yet to accomplish in and through us, for his glory, for his praise.
In verse 10, he is convicted by conscience. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men and he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of his servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Interesting that even before the prophet Gad arrived, that David was already conscience-stricken. Numbering the fighting men was wrong, and without having to be rebuked, David recognises his sin. And he confesses his great sin, and hence, you know, he acknowledges the foolishness of his actions. And, and that's the great thing about David, is that he was quick to repent and ask for forgiveness. A man after God's own heart will not be perfect, in, in, you know, will make foolish mistakes, but he will always come back to God and acknowledge when he has done wrong. And this sense of guilt and his confession seems to have taken place at night because by the next morning the prophet Gad came to him with the word of the Lord. There's no debate or discussion. There's no, there's no yeah, insistence proclaiming your innocence. No, guilty as charged. That was a given. The only matter now is what punishment David would receive. Discipline by God, verses 11 to 14. Go and tell David, this is what the Lord says. I'm giving you three options. Choose one of them for me to carry out against you. So Gad went to David and said to him, Shall there come upon you three years of famine in your land, or three months of fleeing from your enemies while they pursue you, or three days of plague in your land? Now then, think it over and decide how I should answer to the one who sent me. That was God. And David said to Gad, I'm in deep distress. Let us, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for his mercy is great, but do not, do not let me fall into, the, into human hands. Remember, God allowed Satan to tempt David. David failed the test and sinned. In the past, his weakness were women. Now it was pride. So God had to deal with David accordingly. And, and he's given three, 28. And these three options are, are all there in Deuteronomy chapter 28. As punishment for Israel for failing to, to, to follow the covenant of God. He had to choose between something bad and something worse. He had to choose between three years of famine, we will call that climate change today, three months of war, or three days of plague. Uh, plague, COVID. You can choose. Do you want a plague? Do you want a pandemic? Well, no thanks. Well, you've got to choose one of them. Why did David choose the third option, the plague? 
because he would, he would rather suffer at the hand of a holy and righteous God than at the hand of men. Because it is God who administers the punishment and, and he does it more directly. Because David knows that he will not suffer the wrath of God as a rebellious unbeliever, but as a son who is loved by a father. I'd rather God spank me than the school principal. Okay? Do you ever say that? Dad, please, if you're going to belt me, please. Okay, by the way, that used to be in past generations. Now it's all positive reinforcement. That's a discipline today. Anyway, um, (laughs) we'll do better next time. Okay. David knows that if it's God who does the discipline, that he's going to suffer as a son loved by his father. He would, he would write, he would write this in Psalm 31, the words that would be repeated, get this, get this, get this. Psalm 31, he, this is, this is amazing. These words will be repeated by his glorious descendant as he exhaled his, his last breath from a cross. What did he say? Into your hands I commit my spirit. Into the hands of God. Psalm 31 verse 5. And Jesus repeated it from the cross. It's amazing. Folks, no matter what life offers, to put your hands... If you put your life in the hands, you put yourself into the hands of the living God, no matter how painful it is, it will work out in the end. Even if sometimes it means being corrected as David was. Think of this. David not only trusts God for his, for his salvation and for deliverance from his enemies, but trusts God for his discipline as well. That's good. There is no area of our lives that we should, you know, that we should entrust to men instead of God. Always, always fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 to 10. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he, God, disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. And our last heading this morning, painful mercy from verses 15 to 16. So the Lord sent a plague on Israel from the morning until the end of the time designated and 70,000 of the people from Dan to Beersheba died. And when the angel stretched out his hand to destroy Jerusalem, the Lord relented concerning the disaster and said to the angel who was afflicting the people, Enough, withdraw your hand. 
The angel of the Lord was then at the threshing floor of Arauna, the Jebusite. Painful mercy. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? When you fall from a ladder and you break your arm instead of your neck, that's painful mercy. Do you not agree? The Lord was angry with Israel and the plague which came to his people was justly deserved. Not only because of David's sin but because of Israel's sin as well. Somewhat ironic that David sought to learn how many Israelites were there, how many soldiers at his disposal and God hits him where it hurts because that moment God reduces his number by 70,000. He wanted to know how much? Bang, suddenly. Here's the interest. And after the plague hits every part of the nation, the angel approaches Jerusalem, the capital of the city, ready to bring calamity there as well, right at the threshold of the city. And the angel of the Lord was standing at the threshing floor of Arawuna when he was ordered to halt. Folks, again, angels are not fluffy things. Uh, you know, that, that are there to, you know, be nice to us and, and, and granting our wishes like a fairy godmother. No, that's not the biblical view of angels, okay? They are fierce warriors who do God's work throughout the earth, okay? And David sees the angel of the Lord with his sword lifted high, ready to slay the many in Jerusalem. But God in his mercy had already relented from bringing further calamity. And this is where David's faith in God for judgment was well founded. Because he relied on God's mercy. God had poured out his wrath on his people and now has mercy on them. And this is where we're going to continue this in our next message, in our next sermon, this second part, because that's an exciting part as well, how that concludes. But for this morning, let me conclude with the words of David that he wrote in Psalm 18. As for God, his way is perfect, Psalm 18 verse 30. Now, if God's ways are perfect then however many questions without answers, however perplexed we might be at some of the stuff that we face in our lives, we can trust that whatever he does and whatever he allows is also perfect. Our responsibility to God is to obey him to trust him and to submit, to surrender to his will, whether we understand it or not. And this is where faith comes in. May God bless us. Amen.